Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Hey, Grandpa, is it true that uh, Santa Carla is the murder capital of the world? Well, now let me put it this way. If all the corpses buried around here was to stand up all at once, we'd have one hell of a population problem. Today, as part of a listener request, we'll be discussing The Lost Boys. Starring Corey Feldman. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. Diane Weiss. If, if there's a girl. I'm tired, Mom. We could talk about. I'm tired. We could talk about anything you wanted to talk about. I have more serious things in my mind than girls in school. There's things I'm dealing with that you can. Things I wouldn't understand. Corey Haynes. Your creature of the night, Michael. Just like out of a comic book. You're a vampire, Michael. My own brother, a goddamn shit-sucking vampire. Will you wait till Mom finds out, buddy? Jamie Hurts. Why didn't you kill me last night? You're supposed to be my first. That's what David wants. Jason Patrick. You afraid to face me, David? Tried to make you immortal. You tried to make me a killer! And Kiefer Sutherland. Now you know what we are. Now you know what you are. Never grow old, Michael. And you'll never die. Directed by Joel Schumacher. One thing about living in Santa Carla, I never could stomach. All the damn vampires. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Don't kill me, Mike. I'm basically a good kid. It's Gally in Glasgow. Chinese. Good choice. It's Matt in South Korea. Well, welcome back, Matt, and welcome back, listeners. We truly have got some lost boys on our hands today. With Patrick still working hard to regain the might of Rome, he told me, Matt, there was once a dream that was Rome. You could only whisper it. (laughs) <laughs> anything more than a whisper and it would vanish it was mm-hmm. so fragile so he's currently battling tigers and former gladiatorial champions and then we've got devlin uh devlin who is just away on holiday again so mm-hmm. matt i am beginning to question his commitment to sport promotion <laughs> boom i banged in two two references it's a it's a duology a, a galley matt duology again this isn't our first rodeo though is it matt just me no. and you so today listeners we are doing a listener request for Halloween, and we are discussing Joel Schumacher's stylish vampire outing, The Lost Boys, from 1987. This was one I have very clear memories of. Um, the, the two occasions that I remember the most are when I was a kid, probably preteen. Um, my entire group of friends talked about this one a lot, and um friend you know keen listeners of the show will remember dave smith he was uh you know his family of actors that acted smitty. everything out yeah. Uh, yeah smitty and uh they it was via him and his older brothers i think there's a lot of quotes going around and circulating vhs's you know those were the days and uh yeah i remember that and i remember watching it again around 2002 with a with a lady friend at, at university and they they were both key kind of viewings for me that i always returned to uh, and the other bit of trivia I have was this was my first film, the first film in my life that um, provoked uh, a nightmare. 
uh, after I saw the trailer to The Lost Boys, uh, I had a very oh. vivid dream about hanging from a train track um, with a train quickly approaching. And uh, in, my, in my dream, it was based on the trailer. I didn't really know exactly what was happening in the scene. So the train was going to run over my hands. So I had to abandon, you know, holding on before the train hit me. So that was, and I woke up just as the train kind of plowed over the top of me. Um, so th- this was the, the first time it had been kind of uh, induced, induced a nightmare in me from uh, from a cinematic image that's freud that's freudian <laughs> it could be <laughs> but we're oh, i to read the dream uh the book on dreams again yeah what, what does got, it mean what a copy what yeah. does it all mean Basil? I, I don't think there's any sexy vampires in the film i think i was on my own on under that bridge but um so we'd have to read into it slightly differently than joel schumacher might have suggested but i've returned to it several times over the years and and uh sandwiches will probably continue to but um, I, I gather this was your very first viewing of The Lost Boys. Is that correct, Kelly? I need somebody to stop the the Lost Boys fans from staking me in my heart. But yeah, no, I'd never don't send him to movie them. jail. I think I was maybe just a couple of years too young, and it and it flew over my head as fast as David and his gang's attacks. Um, I didn't. I yeah, I just didn't see it, mm-hmm. uh, and then I didn't ever feel overly compelled to go and see it mm-hmm. if that makes sense but but strangely so much of it through pop culture is just like embedded so i know cry little sister i yeah. just know that song you're aware of the topless saxophone player absolutely i mean you're just just health and safety um <laughs> he is so oiled up next to those drums of fire and naked flames yeah 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 i mean that is dangerous and he's got a saxophone which yeah. is also a conductor of heat so yeah it was <laughs> it was all very worried on my first watch but no mm. i knew of that gif and all you know who couldn't i mean it's basically like Shawn michaels with a saxophone <laughs> it is, isn't it or triple h i thought or triple h yeah it's more triple h on the oil but mm. more Shawn michaels in the hair he's, um, he's an amalgamation yeah, I don't know which one of them is a better saxophone player, but we'll have to ask. Uh, but yeah, that was, um, so I knew that. I knew Jason Patrick. Yeah. I knew Keith Sutherland, um, huge Keith Sutherland fan. But again, strange that huge Keith Sutherland fan from 24, then let's go and revisit every Keith Sutherland fan. Could I, could I, I cor- watch, correct you on Keith? Oh, am I saying Keith? And it's showing it's actually Keith. It is, it's Kiefer. And, uh, I think uh, a f- friend of mine and, uh, and Devlin's, Erin, was a big fan of, uh, Kiefer Sutherland and uh, would often talk about him. So that's how I uh, always remember. It's Kiefer, not Kiefer. So just for the, ah. the Kieferites, uh, Sutherland uh, stands. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, not a silent F, listeners. So don't get caught <laughs> out. But yeah, listener request uh, sent in from Lewis Norm. Um, not his first uh, listener request. Uh, avid listener of the show. No, I remember we made fun of him because he we said he was like Norm from uh, There's Something About Mary, the uh, the Lee Evans character. I don't believe he's a pizza delivery boy, <laughs> yeah, but if he is, that's not a problem. Um, unless, of course, you are uh, pretending to be an architect and trying to get with uh, you know women that are well out of your league. Yeah, but that's a different that's a, for a different discussion. Um, he's actually moved house though, um, and he's moved closer to to me here in Glasgow. He's actually moved to Scotland. To a, to a little village called Twat uh, on the Shetland Islands. 
So, um, sounds lovely. <laughs> when will this end? When I run out of funny named UK places. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm still waiting for an international listener request. We haven't had one yet, mm-hmm. um, but there are plenty of funny, funny places that people could be from yeah. in the US or elsewhere. I, I must say, there's some places in the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. Ripe for the picking. Well, thank you, Lewis, again, for uh, for um, yeah suggesting a film. He didn't supply us with a kind of reason, but I think he's just a big fan of the movie. I've already said that I haven't. Let me explain, though. I've got a theory, though, Matt, on this. Um, I, I don't think it's, um, it's in any way a misrepresentation to say that The Lost Boys is as a kind of like pop cultural phenomenon. Like people of our age, people of younger ages, people of all ages have seen The Lost Boys, not just as a kind of like, here's a staple vampire movie, but just the look of it. The 80s of it all is dripping from the screen. Um, I think the reason why it bypassed me was because this was, you know, the old back in the day um, where something like this, gets released it wasn't like a global hit it did well it made money it garnered a kind of like cult following in the states and then migrated over to the uk as a kind of cult film which is how it used to be you know so i think that's why it passed me by uh, it wasn't a case that i was purposely avoiding it i just think literally it missed it, it bypassed me but uh, and then for me my first real introduction to kind of vampires in cinema was double bill of Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola and Interview with a Vampire. They were my two vamp- they were my th- like two vampire films. Gothic. So Near Dark and Lost Boys. Yeah. Just weren't on my radar until later in life. Yeah, um Near Dark didn't come around for me until much later. When I when I found out that these two films were made the same year, 1987 uh, Vampires um and both films are in some way responsible for one of my favorite vampire films from Dust Till Dawn that we talked about a couple of years ago at Halloween. And uh, this idea of that transition from the gothic vampire to the modern contemporary vampire is exactly what you've just laid out there, really. Mm. And then obviously you get, you know, the film Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. which again, I didn't watch until I saw the TV series because, you know, everything was back to front mm-hmm. as I was getting older. And I was then like, you know, the old classic thing of looking back and thinking, oh, there you go. Well, there's, you know, there's, there's Christy Swanson before she <laughs> yeah. was, you know, mad. Um, <laughs> don't let the lawyers come at me. Um, but yeah, so it's one of those, isn't it? Like that's how, that's how you kind of consume media yeah. is it sometimes can be back to front. But for me, just the Lost Boys by, bypass me. And here's another mm-hmm. one. I mean, I probably, I'm going to definitely go to cinematic jail. Highlander. Never seen it, but I've seen the sequel. I've still never seen, I've never seen either of them. I know there can only be one and blah, 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 and it's on the periphery, but I've never seen it myself. So maybe, I bet Devlin likes that one. (laughs) I have a feeling Dev likes it. You know enough to probably blagged that you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. Big Sword. Um, There can only be one. Connery's in it. a hill. A bit. Yeah. Yeah. A cloud. That's enough, isn't it? I've never seen it though. But yeah, yeah, there you go. It's, It's one of those things, isn't it? And now I feel like if I went back, I would probably be, um, less forgiving. I don't know, and we'll see how how the Lost Boys plays with a first time viewer in his thirties. It, it could have been that I just had a group of friends that knew it, and and you know, like I said, Dave's brothers were older, so things are kind of passed down. And and I think it was just a cool film that was that was circulating on video, and uh, I just happened to have friends that were into it. 
So yeah, I was fortunate on, in that respect to see it at the right time because it's one of those films that you should see at a certain age, I think, to get the most out of. Well, before we get into our discussion on The Lost Boys, Matt, would you care to remind me and the listeners of the plot to The Lost Boys? Yeah, this is from the back of the video box, so uh, please forgive me. Sam and his older brother, Michael, are all American teens with all American interests. But after they move with their mother to peaceful Santa Clara, California, things mysteriously begin to change. Michael's not himself lately, and Mum's not going to like what he's turning into. Nice. Brief. Yeah, br brief, but uh, if I were in Blockbuster as a kid, maybe I would have picked up The Lost Boys. I clearly didn't. But maybe the good I cover, done. good cover. Yeah, is it? So I've seen. Is the poster was the original poster the ones where it's essentially just all the faces, but they've changed mm -hmm. it to now a kind I, of iconic image of them hanging on on the, the train tracks. I don't think it was the train track on the cover that I remember. There was a black one, which is exactly like the uh, the US one sheet poster with just the faces, and then there's a UK quad version that's drawn. I think it's a combination of being um, uh, penciled in or, or inked in and then uh, combining that with the photographs of characters above that was very interesting too. Um, but yeah, the video box was just plain black with the characters and, and a very cool font, uh, Lost Boys font. Well, before we get into properly dissecting the movie uh, and discussing it in, in greater detail, I wanted to take some time to discuss the director who we've not covered yet on the show. Mm -hmm. But I've grown up with his movies, and I think I've seen, I would say, probably 90% of them. There's only a mm -hmm. couple that I haven't seen. Joel Schumacher, which for many Bats fans is poison, <laughs> toxic. Yeah. You know, that is, that's worse than saying Suicide Squad. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. So, you know, but I think he, get, he, he got a bit of an unfair rap, I yeah. think. And I think so. He made two silly kidified bat films with some nipples and some crotch. But here's here's the one that gets me every time, Matt. I was looking at his filmography. He made Batman Forever, which mm -hmm. um, you know, as a kid, um, even <laughs> even then I was like, I think Jim Carrey <laughs> might be taking over this movie. Um, yeah. Just a, there's a little bit too much Ace Ventura in this. I think there's, there's a Ham Neal Award there, I think we know where that's going. Oh yeah, and then uh, and and then he made a Time to Kill, his second big Grisham. Did you get whiplash there? I, I well, I just couldn't believe that he then went and made Batman and Robin. Well, how how aware were you of him when you first saw these films? Because he's kind of a director to me that uh, I, I knew him by name, but I wasn't completely aware that he made all of these things that I enjoyed, like Flatliners and Falling Down, and even something like Phone Booth with Colin Farrell. I, I've forgot that he made it. But I was I was there first first weekend of of that opening. So he makes choices that appeal to me, but I don't always associate him directly with being like an auteur. No, it's strange, isn't it? Because I would say that his style is defined now by his two Batman films, and especially Batman and Robin. Although I don't know, the neon and the crotch and all that stuff kind and the, of the, there's a camp through. aspect, a colourful camp aspect to it, isn't there? Yeah. And I would say that the other defining visual aesthetic is his his two big popular 80s movies, which is St. Elmo's Fire mm -hmm. and this, The Lost mm -hmm. Boys. Just because 
with one they're the they're sort of the four most popular films popular as in you know people saw them doesn't yeah. mean you know like i say the ba- i think batman forever did well and commercially and critically but batman and robin is you know notable forever did i don't think it did i remember batman for, forever there was a, a quote on the back of the video box uh, from jonathan ross that said the greatest film ever made and i think it was some kind of in joke or uh, uh or, or they or, took the quote out of context dot 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 yeah <laughs> something like that but i can't remember i think jonathan ross was involved in some way i think he saw something saw some kickbacks from it or something i don't he wasn't he wasn't just doing critic <laughs> stuff was he? he was probably doing his tv show as well. yeah yeah it's kind of hard like to that, slam but... someone and then say hey do you want to come on saturday and i'll have a chat with you as well by the way you film shit i, I don't remember it being received very well and it certainly wasn't received well I, after the tim burton stuff i think it was a letdown to a lot of people but um we, we've talked about how that they can be quite a toxic community can't they like putting nipples on a bat suit isn't the biggest sin in the world isn't it no no i don't i <laughs> personally i don't think so <laughs> personally i don't care i mean if you care about that then you'll take a long hard look at yourself but well, uh, i just think i just think like did you not watch <laughs> 60s batman yeah. like, I, I get it like it was camp from the beginning he was wearing a pair of silk clad <laughs> pants dad bod yeah dad bod yeah anyway <laughs> um, so i think he gets an unfair rap but you're absolutely right makes some interesting choices phone booth is a really good nasty little thriller yeah and i really enjoyed it and i remember enjoying although i think it's probably not aged well tigerland with colin farrell when colin farrell was doing his kind of um ascension to superstardom yeah he's good in that um and it was kind of his full metal jacket in a way yeah i remember liking it but i haven't returned to it but falling down you know listen everyone who's listened to the show long enough knows that i'm a big michael douglas fan it's in the pipeline it's in the pipeline. probably his one of his best performances just because he's totally unhinged totally let loose and again, quite a nasty film. Well, that's that's a good example of him tapping into something because we all, the, the same group of friends I'm talking about, we loved Falling Down. And I had no idea it was the same director. I think the only director I was really aware of at the time was Spielberg. This was all pre-Tarantino. So the only, Spielberg was the only name that I knew like consistently made this, that, and, and the other. But um, the fact that Joel Schumacher was making things like Flatliners and Falling Down as well as this, that we're all they're tapping into something within you know my, my friend group was was really cool well we'll reserve our kind of thoughts on falling down in a great detail because i think that's going to yeah. be a... we need two hours on that one yeah absolutely but you know if you're thinking about um toxic masculinity and uh white privilege but hurt joel schumacher was onto <laughs> something very early yeah if you have not seen falling down please watch it and then when we do the episode maybe next year mm. you can listen and you can go oh yeah that's fair Joel Schumacher but the other thing as well is the John Grisham stuff it just it speaks to me as a as a as a director who's got he's malleable and flexible but I look at his movie filmography now just very very inspired by Robert Altman and I think the reason why he did so well in the 80s is because he was so malleable and Mm -hmm. able to do the one thing that I think most directors want to have under their belt uh, as a reputation which is can tap into the zeitgeist. Yeah. And he did it with St. Elmo's Fire and he did it with the Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's that idea of going, well, what's the youth culture? What's something that audiences haven't seen before? Yeah. What fresh perspectives and what fresh outlooks can I bring to something? And then, and here's the biggest compliment, gets replicated. 
And he did that, you know, you can't, for whatever you thought of him, he did that throughout his career. Yeah. And the research here points to that too. Like he didn't want to make another Goonies, that, that there was a, a Richard Donner attachment to this as, as director. I think he went on and produced it, um, executive produced it. And uh, it was originally going to be Dick Donner. And it was going to be a younger group of people like uh, playing on that idea of the Peter Pan uh, version of the Lost Boys. And when Schumacher came in, he made it, he made them teenagers and he made them cool and, you know, sexy and, you know, more appealing to the, to the youth market or whatever you would, you would call it. But he has an awareness of what will work. And like you said, what will tap into the zeitgeist? Well, I was looking at some of the imagery and thinking Michael Bay nicked a lot of this for his meatloaf video which is the basis for everything he's done since as we discussed on uh, the rock again and maybe i'm not doing joel schumacher any favors here but you do not get michael bay without joel schumacher i don't think no and you don't get the lost boys without um adam and the ants and uh, a lot of other music videos too you know the other second quality that he's definitely got he he unearths talent that will then ascend to kind of a list you look at saint elmo's fire you've got yeah. demi moore uh-huh. andy mcdowell Rob Lowe, Emilio, Emilio. I mean, I think Emilio, I think would have been a star anyway, just because, you know, nepotism yeah. is alive and well. I just think that there are two, two key things that most directors want to have as a reputation, mm-hmm. which is I can tap into the zeitgeist and I can unearth genuine well, talent. Well, Haim was a thing, like the, the, the yeah. two Corys was a, a thing that was about to blow up. And, uh, he, I, I don't know, we'll probably get to how good you think, uh, Corey Haim is in the movie, but there's certainly something there that appealed to, to a lot of particularly girls but um you know the, the two of them became a, a thing there for a while there was a few four or five films they made together as the two Corys, and that's mm. that's all on display here for the first time i think interesting that you said about um schumacher not wanting to go down the goonies route because mm. um, well, let's get straight into it i will i will display one of my first negatives which is i actually think the comic book vampire mm-hmm. killer group the frog brothers you're referring to yeah the frog brothers i found Mm. Corey feldman to be far too much in this and i was trying to track where he was in his career so he he's already a thing isn't he at this yeah stand by me and uh, the goonies are are under his belt yeah he feels a little bit too unleashed in this and well what happened there was he he was asked to be uh butch was the (laughs) was the uh one of the first quotes from schumacher uh yes he was asked to be butch and uh, he studied the action cinema of the time, which was predominantly slow Stallone. And he, I think he's doing a bit of a, um, a deep voice. Uh, <laughs> I can't really do it, but he doesn't sound like this in any other film. But he's, he's trying to sound like Sylvester Stallone, I assume. You did the right thing by calling us. Does your brother sleep a lot? Yeah, all day. Does the sunlight freak him out? Uh, he wears sunglasses in the house. Bad breath. Yeah, his fingernails are all a bit longer. Um, he always had bad breath, though. He's a vampire, all right. All right, here's what you do. Get yourself a good, sharp steak and drive it right through his heart. I can't do that. He's my brother. Okay, we'll come over and do it for you. No! You better get yourself a garlic t-shirt, buddy. Or it's your funeral. One of the things I quite like about that is that there's two sides to Lost Boys. It's like uh, there's that really broad, comedic thing that's happening where wait till mum finds out 
you know, you're a vampire, wait till mum finds out. And then there's all the stuff with the Frog Brothers and the the kind of playful way they talk about vampire lore and they spell it out for the audience. It's kind of fun. And on the other side, it's like Michael's a smackhead and he's going yeah. through this massive existential crisis. Oh, I'm glad you got smackhead. I was thinking, like, what was the drug of the time? And I was thinking, was heroin a thing? <laughs> Heroin's always been a thing, but, like, I, it was coke. It was coke, but he, he, he doesn't give, like, a coke vibe. He gives, like, a really doped... Doped. Maybe he's been on the grandpa's uh, stash, but uh, yeah, the uh, strong stuff. <laughs> even when he's on the boardwalk before he get before he drinks the blood, he looks stoned. Well, yeah, when he's staring at Star, I'm like, yeah, yeah. If you keep looking like that, someone's gonna arrest you. Yeah, someone's gonna call the cops. There's a smackhead on the boardwalk. You can only stare at a girl for like four seconds before it becomes uh, an offence. <laughs> not in the eighties. Not in nineties. Not in the eighties. So there's this there's this weird duality going on, and we talk about tone and heralding tone. And I keep banging on about how I believe that great directors can fluctuate that tone and give you many different, uh, you know, tones in, in the shape of one film to, for, for, for a more satisfying experience. On the other hand, something like The Exorcist where Friedkin, you know, um, shepherds this singular tone is also really an ingenious kind of thing to be able to do. So this one's all over the shop, but in a, in a way they actually actually quite enjoy yeah i think you've you've convinced me um and i didn't need a great deal of convincing because <laughs> um the re the reason being is because normally i am mr structure mm. now this movie is written if you were like a you know if you're robert mckee yeah this has got all of the the hallmarks of structural screenplay that you want to see in your story mm. you've got your characters established the motivations are all pretty much there um some of them are, are inherent you know um michael's of an age where exploration or you know kind of anti-authority although he's not less anti-authority and just more um a, a bit dumb because he's curious because <laughs> yeah. he's a teenager he's a hot dummy well when when a gang of bikers um have attacked me before on the streets yeah. of stoke as a young teen <laughs> i don't then go i'll tell you what come with us galley i might be your mate where are you going oh, yeah. I'll, let me just get my bmx i'll be in a second didn't you make I'll friends with a skater gallery. like that I did, yes, I did. Yeah, maybe that was like a similar thing, like a, a countercultural uh, calling. I mean, he did invite me to go and, and watch Event Horizon. It's slightly different. I didn't drink his blood. You know what <laughs> no, I mean? Yeah, but it is. Yeah. As far as structure, I think the film absolutely works. The one thing that Schumacher will not allow is for you to be bored. Listen, we will spend absolute optimal time needed on every single yeah. character, and no more, because. If we spend any more time, people might think that this is a bit silly. So they, they right. really do kind of thrift through. And, and then it led me to the question, which I think we've never really answered, which is, does plot actually matter? And this is why I'm saying to you, when you talk about tone and helming tone, and, and I think you're absolutely mm. right, Schumacher manages to kind of hold this onion together. I just think... You're absolutely right. Yeah. Because I don't think the plot actually really matters in this film. And there's certain things that happen in it that, uh, you know, and there's lots of setup and payoff. You know, I like the fact that Grandpa is staking in a fence at one point that yeah. we then play into the end. Yeah. And it's like completely pointless at the time. I was like, why are we watching him knocking mm. a couple of boulders? Well, that passed me by. And, and then I, I, it's set up and payoff, isn't it? It's very quick, very quick. I would have liked more drugs payoff though. Like maybe the vampires get stoned and that, that slows one of them down, but it doesn't. I, I had one, one thing there and you know, the, we can get to it later when we get to the, 
the metaphors that are happening here, but there's a bit where um, David offers Michael a reefer in the, in the cave and he says appetizer. Mm. And I think if you remove that, that drug element there, then you can read into the film that it is about peer pressure and it is about potentially about drugs. We've talked about the heroin kind of thing. He looks strung out. He's got the glasses on. Um, so, well, you know what they say as well. Uh, well, I'm not, um, I'm not a politician or a, a chief of police, but, uh, it's a gateway drug. Is yeah. Cannabis, <laughs> right. Right. To, to it would have been a concern at the time. It would have been, you know, they always ask the presidents if, if they've smoked before, you know, I didn't inhale and all that. So I think Clinton was nineties, but you know, it was, it was on the way. But, um, if you remove that drug element, then it, the film becomes a potential read for, for drugs and the dangers of peer pressure and drugs. But because he puts drugs in that scene, it becomes a metaphor for something else that we'll probably get to a bit later. But to answer your, your earlier question, um, it, it depends on the skill of the filmmaker for me and the aim of the film uh, as to if plot actually matters and something like uh, style over substance gets thrown around a lot as a negative but I think when that's done well, they're the most enjoyable films that exist. For me, the secret source in The Lost Boys is the attitude mm. and the vibrancy of the film. When I talk about plot... You, you can be Sid, the Sid Field or the uh, Robert McKee no, no, of the I'm, plot. It, my, my, my version of what plot is, is just the what. Mm-hmm. What is it we're doing? What is it we're, you know, what is happening? Plot requires characters to be motivated to do yeah. things. If you don't have motivation in your characters, then you don't have any plot. So right. they, they, it's a symbiotic relationship. But the plot in this film, if you track it, is bonkers in an hour and 37 <laughs> minutes. It's like, it really does go from zero to vampire hero in, mm-hmm. in quick quick time. But it's not really, a, not that it's not about that, but I think the plot is just the mechanics and really yeah. Joel Schumacher is not dreadfully interested in it. Hence why we spend a little bit of time just on a bike in a, what appears to be a music video sequence. <laughs> but that's me, that's me set that, as a compliment though. Yeah. That's the secret source. It's the attitude. Well, do, do you not love it when that music kicks in and they go off on the, through the smoke and it, it's a great sequence for me? It reminded me a little bit of, um, now this is where we're talking about tears and different tears of filmmakers but mm. like Catherine Bigelow's point break when we talked about the football scene on the beach yeah that's got a vibe that's got like an intimacy that's got a there's a seduction there mm-hmm. it's not just happening to the characters that on screen it's happening to the audience now for me I was watching the Lost Boys in those kind of seduction scenes with uh David and Michael mm. and I was like yeah you're sucking me in it even happens earlier on um Right away. Right on the boardwalk. On the boardwalk, yeah, absolutely. And obviously, an, a greased up uh, Shawn Michaels, Triple H saxophone player will also entice some intrigue. But all of that was quite seductive. <laughs> it does, there are certain films that you want to live in, and I don't know if I want to live in it, but um, I, I, I was going to say it in my conclusion, but I'll say it now. The, I, I'm from a village called Catrick, which is um, near Catrick Garrison. <laughs> no, not Twat. Yeah, I'm from near uh, Catrick Garrison, which I think is still the biggest army base in the UK. And so a lot of my friends, uh, their mums or dads would get posted very frequently. So they'd be moving around. You'd get to know someone and then they'd leave. And of course, it wouldn't be great for, for me, but it wouldn't be great for them either because they'd have to make new friends every everywhere they went. So every time I see a film 
like this, where um, immediately I'm I'm on the side of these characters because they're moving somewhere new. Same thing happens in Karate Kid with um, with Daniel Larusso, um, you know, moving to a new place, and I'm immediately on their side, and uh, that that really helped me to to feel for the for the characters there. But the um, what were we saying about um, about plot? So I'm I'm immediately on their side, but I, I wanted to say about uh, I've forgotten which director it was. It may have been Bergman, but he talks about how feeling a film is more important than understanding it. And it's not that Lost Boys is hard to understand because this one's pretty pretty simple to understand. But it's a film that you can nevertheless feel, and you you're appreciating it purely visually at times. And uh, it's like a trip that you that you go on. And uh, I, so I think you can sacrifice plot for this overall kind of idea of a visual feast. Um, but it, it doesn't really matter to me too much here. There's not a lot going on, but there's enough going on and there's enough twists, particularly at the end with that one interesting little reveal um, of, of the head vampire that um, that did catch me off guard on, on the first time I saw it. But um, one of the things that, that helps here that might lead us into our next bit about vampire films in general uh, is is that this film... Uh, it is like a, it has a shortcut because we are aware of certain vampire tropes. So already we, we're aware that we're in a vampire film and that's enough to, to, to not have to uh, go too far into a plot. We're aware of a lot of things and, and they do, I don't want to say rehash because that sounds negative, but they do establish what their rules are. And it, every vampire film has to establish its own, its own law. And, uh, so this, so this one, they're, they're playing with garlic. They've got the transparent reflection in the mirror. Um, we assume that David has, uh, the girl from Twister under some kind of hypnosis, um, at, at times. It's a, it's a strange one, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. I, I suppose it's because, uh, again, one of the rules that they've got, and, and actually probably the most interesting rule is that you can be a, a vampire, but not be a fully fledged vampire until you've killed and fed and and that's why um michael doesn't transform until he's killed david at the end because that's his first kill because that 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 will be your justification for anyone who's coming in as like a a vampire mythological expert who says Mm. well he's got sunglasses on but he's not burning up in the sun david's hand sets on fire when he reaches into the light and that's because he's a full vampire uh there's other stuff like uh like maybe uh maybe yeah, if you invite a vampire into your house it renders you powerless you know that's another thing that one it allows the red herring to <laughs> to remain red until yeah. uh until the necessary time when it's no longer a herring it's a fucking vampire <laughs> <laughs> uh they, they use um regenerative healing powers when the dog bites michael and he and he heals um hanging upside down like bats i i don't remember seeing that before I mean, I'm, oh, I'm watching in Batman. I mean, Mike—he's <laughs> not even a vampire, but he's hanging upside down in Batman. It, the transforming into a bat is—I'm watching a lot of Hammer horror for for October at the moment, and there's some really daft bats on strings. Um, but the, there's nobody hanging upside down from the rafters. Uh, but there is some flying here. The 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 transitional stuff and the flying, like the the kind of—is it like a Salem's Lot kind of thing where he's outside the window floating, um, and he's saying, "Let me in." Well, I saw the iron that. that reminded me and again listeners you'll have to forgive me especially those that are like proper aficionados 
I'm obviously watching things in reverse. So that reminded me of David Arquette hanging out of a window in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But, but, but that's the thing. It's like, well, there is your, there's yeah. your link. You know, Joel Schumacher is, I, whether he invented it, he hasn't invented it, but he's created an image that's then gone, oh. mm. So vampires just float outside windows, do they? Yeah, well, that's, I think that's so. kind of druggy as well. Like that bit where he's floating on his own ceiling. I mean, I think that's a drug thing. I mean, it, it, it must be. Like, it was Ellen. Mary Jim Morrison when he's like, help me get into the window. I was like, where are we going with this? Jim Morrison's outside. Morrison. Yeah, let him in. Uh, but then they abandon something like garlic. Garlic absolutely doesn't work. And then uh, crucifixes don't seem to work, even when they make their own. Um, but then yes. holy water does. So, uh, and, and this idea of putting holy water in, um, water pistols is from Dust Till Dawn, isn't it? That's, that's exactly what the kid does. There's a line in Reservoir Dogs. You remember when Tim Roth is, uh, practicing his, his uh, commode story because he's an undercover oh, yeah. cop and he goes, uh, like somebody calls him, he goes, motherfucker, I'm trying to watch The Last Boys. And <laughs> it, it, it's like Tarantino is totally aware of this film and, uh, and that would have aligned with, you know, roughly when he was writing that script, I think. So, um, I, I do think it played in, but particularly near dark with the, cause that came from Kurtzman as well. So there's all the stuff with the, um, uh, like the camper van, uh, what's it called? RV, they call them. Or, yeah, the RV. Yeah. So it's, it owes to both films, I think. But yeah, all mm. this idea of playing with vampire lore is, is, is a shortcut and, and we need less plot because we're aware of a lot of things that just happen. Yes. Well, we can, we can then enjoy the platter of, well, what are you going to do with this, this creature that we're so familiar with? Uh, and that, I, that leads me to kind of really the big existential question, which is, you know, this is our second vampire outing on the show yeah. with, with, from Dust Till Dawn. Um, and I, I've no doubt we'll do others. I mentioned before the couple that really introduced me to vampires. They've, they've lasted through cinematic history. So I guess my question to you, Matt, is why do we think that is? What is it about vampires as a as a creature of the night that allows filmmakers to essentially give us different flavors? Vampire films, I think, I had three answers, really. One was applicability. You can apply it to, to serve as a metaphor for, for, for something. Usually, typically sexual, you know, going back, um, the idea of Nosferatu, even. And, uh, the idea of, um, a lot of the hammer horrors and, and early vampire films. It's the image of, uh, of a vampire hanging over somebody who's lying yes. in bed. It immediately becomes, uh, sexual in its nature, even if you're trying to not make it. Yeah. You can't, you can't get away from the image. Absolutely. Uh, another one would be that they're financially viable, like they're, they're successful films. And the third thing I wrote was that it, it tends to lead to a trend. And when these trends kind of kick off, um, copycat films, it's like a, a snowball kind of rolling and it mm. sort of collects and, and they, um, they seem to pick up speed and you, you could very easily, I, I like to program like months of films sometimes and you could program, you know, 30, 31 fantastic vampire films. Couldn't you, if you, if you narrowed it down and they, and they, and they'd all be of different flavors, different mm. genres, different tones, different, I think you're absolutely right on number one. I think I think it's the malleability, the fact that they are essentially human, you know, 
monsters in disguise. Mm. Yeah. So at one point they can present themselves as one thing and be something transform. else. Yeah. Yeah. And transform that. It's applicable to werewolves, but it's a little bit harder to kind of get away with a, a werewolf walking around and being slightly, um, you know, incon- inconspicuous. Whereas a vampire can be, and you're right, you can apply them any kind of metaphor. I, I was looking at through and I was thinking like, even into with a vampire, very, very different take to Lost Boys. Very, very different take to From Dust Till Dawn. Very, just very, very different. You know, that feels like a tragic tale about actually yeah. you think that you want immortality, but here are the real, real downers on the yeah. idea of living forever. In this film, it's presented as something you should aspire to. You know, David says to Michael, you, you'll never get killed. You could be, and the key word is you'll be young forever. Yeah. So it's seen as like, you know, you don't want to get old. You want to remain in this place because yeah. this is, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's probably the coolest you'll ever be. Well, do you remember the tagline? Um, the, the tagline is, uh, what is it? Sleep all day, party all night. It's good to be a vampire. I think that was the tagline. <laughs> that is a great tag. I did not see that tagline. Yeah. That, that was what was oh. always on the video box. But, and then it's like the delivery of it as well. The films you're referring back to are very lavish. And kind of decadent. There's a romanticism to it, isn't there? What did you call this? A new romanticism? You called this. This one. is the this is the new romantics yeah. of vampires. Um, yeah. You know, Prince Charming. <laughs> <laughs> it was like when Brent gets his earring. You know, when Brent gets his earrings. Oh, it really hurts. It's like when uh, doesn't it, does a star give him a an earring at some point? Yeah, and he's like that. That earring isn't you. And it's like, uh, well, wait till you see my my shoes. I realize you get heels like that. I can still find them. <laughs> <laughs> what's that jacket <laughs> he does leather as well each generation can have their own vampire film essentially mm. because as as the zeitgeist shifts we you know the vampire genre can can follow it you know because it can represent yeah any any demographic whether it be a minor or social or cultural you know you you um you were talking i think you were you were alluding to something that I definitely saw in the movie. And it, this isn't me just going, well, you know, I've also seen Top Gun but, and, and Joel Schumacher just so happens to be homosexual. Yeah. But there is definitely that you could, you could imprint it onto the movie and see it if you wanted to see it. If you didn't want to see it, you could just see it as peer pressure. Pre- pre-teen, I didn't see it at all. I mean, I wasn't aware of it at all. Um, but th- there, I have a heading here that just says gay. <laughs> so I think we should probably talk about it. Yeah, well, I think if you're, um, you know, and there's a couple of uh, podcasts that follow us that specifically um, focus in on LBGTQ mm. horror. Well, I, I would be shocked if The Lost Boys wasn't like all over it. I, I didn't want to get too Tarantino sleep with me Top Gun spiel, you know, because that's the famous thing, isn't it? You know, the, the go the gay way. You could be my winman. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like it felt like a forbidden initiation at some point and and when i was talking about when he offers him the reefer there because the drugs are in the scene uh drugs can no longer be the metaphor because that you know it's about something deeper that's that could be why that that's even there and uh you know he's got the earring and the leather jacket and he's got a motorcycle and we don't want to get too far into what drinking the blood really means but it, it could be a gay parable you could read it that way I, I was rewatching it um today and the the scene that leapt out was the surf Nazis around the bon the bonfire and there's not a woman in sight and everyone has these lustful 
kind of uh, gazes, you know, and, uh, you know, there's like these decadent fires of hell and, and it's like something he can't resist. And he's, he's got this, Michael's got this pain because he doesn't participate in that one. He just watches it. And he's like, he's, he's watching a, an orgy and, and it's, and it's an all male one. You know, there's, there's no. You and your orgies, man. Honestly, <laughs> it's event horizon all over again. <laughs> Ro- event horizon, Robocop and now the Lost Boys. Oh, yeah, I've done it three. It's my trilogy. You don't, it's your trilogy. All right, yeah. I'll knock it on the head now, but th- there's, there's a bit where the, the, this, the song is walk this way, talk this way, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. You, you know, and there's also this very overt thing that's already been discussed. We're not the first to discuss it. It's like, a politically subversive film in many ways. And, and Schumacher even talked about how it, it's about a fear of people who live outside the mainstream. Now that doesn't have to be homosexuality. It can be whatever. And I think that's what, that, that is why the vampire as a monster is so enduring because of, of all those things that we're reading into the lost boys, you could just watch it as it is just the new uh, romantic vampire movie where everyone's got big, long hair um, dressed a little bit silly. It's a bit camp, and we move on. But that was the stuff that kept me hooked in immediately when I started to see how Schumacher was framing the seduction. I was yes. like, "Well, this isn't just a be a vampire because you get to feed on people and and be young forever." There's 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 double triple meanings going on all over the place. As far as I was, that that's a battle for. It's not a battle for Michael's soul. It's a battle for his sexuality. It feels like that, and also the the star versus David aspect as well. I mean, I I know he makes love with Star, and nothing physical happens with David other than that fight, which become it looks like a dance. It looks like a Beetlejuice dance at one point where they're floating around. It does go a bit Beetlejuice. And in fact, uh, Matt, I actually just uh, an aside. I, I rented this on Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. and guess what film they tried to just immediately put on as soon as Lost Boys finished? <laughs> it's a, it was Beetlejuice. I was like, double yeah, bill. yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a Beetlejuice end in there. I can see. Well, it. one more thing on vampires: like vampires suffer with the human condition. I know they can't die; like they're, they're immortal a lot of the time. But uh, you can't make a gay parable with zombies, really. I mean, I, I challenge somebody to. You could try. I mean, Shaun of the Dead, maybe. But uh, you could maybe do it. But the fact that vampires are very much in the bromance yes. section of the video store, though, isn't it? Not yeah. necessarily. And Point Break too. But that, that's yeah. That, well, that's Point Break we've discussed. Point Break there, there's there's love there between yeah. those two. But you can do things with vampires because they have more of a human element than a lot of these monster monsters um, in in the horror genre. So you can really play with it, and uh, mm. I, I think they use it really cleverly here and and uh, schumacher in particular because you know it's intentional he's like we said yeah. he's, he's a gay man and he's he's if you read his wikipedia he's a very promiscuous uh chap uh lived through the 80s and uh yeah. I, 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 I listened to an interview with him where he was just uh <laughs> he, he couldn't wait to just be so candid as to say for 15 years before i became a director oh there was a lot of drugs sex and rock and roll i was like yeah. oh i can imagine especially in that era um yeah Good old Joel. But I'll, I'll give a, an, an alternative. Uh, conversely, there's a lot of stuff that you could argue against it too. There's a bit where uh, Keith, uh, did I say Keith? I said Kiefer. Kiefer touches yeah. the face of the girl <laughs> on the merry-go-round. Um, and that looks like he's kind of seductively attempting to, to, you know, crack onto her. But it could just be to provoke the muscle-bound 
boyfriend and, and get the attention from him. Now you now you describe that sequence. That is exactly how I read. provoking the the the, the butch guy. Yeah, and in a way, I think if if Schumacher wanted to be so over, he would have left the girl in the attack alive and just taken the man. Right. But I, but again, you know, this is of an era when, not to say that you sneak this stuff in, but smart directors are able to kind of Trojan horse it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just Trojan horsed. Uh, whereas I guess one of the one of the reasons why you see people kind of have an adverse effect to being completely transparent with your intentions, and I'm thinking about sort of modern uh, modern day releases, blockbusters, and TV series, is that. It's got to be entertaining first, and then if you want to layer it with subtext, yeah, for for those people that want to kind of go deeper, right? Then that should really be your intention. I think if you lay it on too thick, you know, if you're making the lasagna, let me use the food analogy <laughs> again, listeners. If you put too much bashmel on it, it's yeah. sloppy. It doesn't right. taste as good because you can't take, you know, you literally can't take the mints. Well, I don't know if they're, <laughs> I don't know if they're red herrings or not, but that there's there seems to be a choice. For Michael, you know, there's two ways he can go. And even the, the Corey Haim character, if you look in his bedroom, he's got a reformed schoolgirls poster on one side. And then he's got, uh, Rob Lowe with his abs out. Rob Lowe with that. I mean, it was ridiculous. I was like, is that a crop top or has he lifted it? And then I was like, no, he's lifting it. Oh, he's lifting it. Okay. He's got his midriff out anyway. And he's, he's showing off. And, and then on the other side of the room, I thought it was, um, Demi Moore in, in Ghost, but that hasn't happened yet. So it was, um, Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink, I think. Um, I'm not too sure. And so there's, there's different things going on in his bedroom. And then there was one other thing where, you know, you, I don't think you can argue that it's, that they're like a homosexual gang for sure. I mean, that the Alex Winter and I think two of the others are flirting with the girl in the, in the video shop. So they're, they're throwing all kinds of things out there. But I, I do think that it's the Trojan horse, isn't it? It's the make an appealing film that, that's going to uh, get to a lot of the masses and Schumacher is going to sneak in some, um, subversive, uh, things if he can. I found it interesting that Diane Weiss did in this because for me, she is the kind of the mother of, of, of my mm. youth because, uh, you know, again, I'm probably definitely going to movie jail. I think the key might get thrown away now, but he, sat here is a huge Footloose fan. Uh-huh. And she was the mother in Footloose. She was right. uh, John oh, okay. Lithgow's wife. John and uh, I was a massive Kevin Bacon fan. What can I say? I saw yeah. Tremors and thought, well, let's give Footloose a go. And when he's dancing around on his own in a factory, I thought, well, that would be a good way of expressing myself. So I was a <laughs> Absolutely nothing at all wrong with that. So, um, yeah, but she's, she's also, let us not forget, the phenomenal performance in Edward Scissorhands. So for me, uh-huh. she is like that character always which is the genial kind of mother and she's kind of playing like a mother of the 60s kind of hippie yes in this, isn't she? yeah and she plays it well because she's not lacking that kind of authority and discipline necessarily to kind of keep these boys on the straight and narrow one thing that i found interesting is we've already talked about um some of the possible kind of like homosexual parable that's running through um the lost boys I thought it was interesting that Joel Schumacher was subverting the 80s trope of the the nuclear family, which we've talked a lot when we've discussed James Cameron, because that is definitely his thing. He likes, you know, 2.4 kids. Like, he absolutely... Not the sitcom. Can't get, 
He well, not the sitcom. He doesn't no, like that. He likes that. Well, he probably would if you gave him some money. But <laughs> yeah. just saying, he's yeah. got another expedition. If the exec produced it, he'd love yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. You will see things you've seen before. <laughs> um, but I thought that it was interesting that throughout the movie, we're seeing these lost boys. That yeah. includes the Frog Brothers. We've got David and the gang. We've also got Corey Haim and Michael. So there are all these like yeah. people that don't have a nuclear family. Even Max, the video store owner. And interestingly, the vampires, mm-hmm. spoilers, listeners, the vampires are the ones that want to, you know, I want a wife so that you can look after my, you know, we can be one big family. We can look after our children mm. together. Mm. And Joel Schumacher is rejecting that in the end yeah. for this kind of new nuclear family, which is, you know, crazy yeah. grandpa who's actually more wily than he gave yeah gave off the whole movie well and another way of looking at it is uh this idea of a broken america at the time i think there was a couple of articles out there um it's an easy google if you want to read more about it we won't go into it too far but the it's this idea of you know divorce being you know incredibly high and uh like you said that there's a lack of a parental uh guardian she's really the only one and and the head vampire they're really the only the only the two ways that are offered as far as the, like parental authority, um, and and da- David and and uh, what's the head vampire? I've forgotten the head vampire's name. Max. Max. Sorry. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot between the two of them there, and there's actually a look that he gives when when Kiefer dies, and he kind of returns to his human form again, and he has no beard, and he's just this youthful lad. And, uh, it's, it's like suffered this horrible fate. So there's, there's a, there's a fatherly aspect there. And then there's obviously the obvious, um, maternal stuff on the other side. But there's, there was also this idea of she's moved to Santa Carla and she's trying to bring a new father figure into the family. And that absolutely doesn't work either. Um, so it could be a, a commentary on that. He plays it so stereotypically as mm. in the scenes are written in such a way that's like, it's like a sitcom. When he, yeah, when he says to Corey, uh, Haim, he's like, I'm not trying to replace your father. <laughs> it's like Saved by it's the like, Bell or something. Yeah, yeah, we are in, we are in sitcom territory. Again, yeah. Joel Schumacher knows exactly what he's doing because not only is it shorthand, it's also misdirection. Yes. With the garlic and, 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 and all that. But, you know, any, anyone who's ever watched a movie ever before will know <laughs> that, um, you know, you really have only got to pick from the characters that you've seen in the entire movie. So yeah. I, I must say, watching it, I thought it was Star. I thought maybe Star was the head vampire. Well, leading in from that, I wrote down, is it scary? Because you've, uh, I think you said on the last one, um, and, and even previously on, on other Halloween episodes, we tend to pick films that aren't really, really scary. I'm not sure why that is, but um, Devlin and I talked about it on the, the Halloween Rewind blog a while ago a lot of really scary films aren't always halloween appropriate sometimes you want something a little lighter and uh the exorcist or the texas chainsaw massacre for example might not be a fun halloween viewing for some but the films that we tend to pick um you've described as been not not particularly scary was there anything here that that got you or uh or, or, or in a broader sense do you feel like they have to be really scary i think the way it's presented with the the 80s veneer of it meant that it was never going to be scary to me. But I can imagine, had I been younger, mm. you know, the image of uh, of, of Kiefer, um, reveal, you know, that reveal. Yeah. And I and I think as well, one of the strong suits 
for the Lost Boys is not only just the 80s of it all, but the practical um, makeup. Yeah. I think actually really does give you a tactile sense of these creatures turn into monsters. And it, again, it reminded me so much of like, we do not get Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV series and the no. makeup that's, that's, that they use on that without the Lost Boys, you know, the pronounced eyes. Um, in fact, it's in from Dust of Dawn as well, yeah, isn't it? Both the, the jaw, the jaw lines. The... I think Patrick said on the Dusk one, was this, were the designers uh, connected to Buffy somehow? Because it's all tied through. You can see, I don't think they were, but it, you can see the progression. And they said here that they wanted to have characters that were good looking and, uh, you know, sexy vampires, but that could turn. And when they turned, they were scary. And then they could return to their previous form again. So so you weren't lumbered with this um, uh, monstrous character permanently. He could be good. He'd be good looking David. And then he could go scary David. Well, so, I'll, I'll tell you what probably got the most, um, certainly suspense. And again, I'm not scared. Oh, let me guess. Let me guess. Is it Michael walking up the stairs in shadow? No. No. Oh. It's, it's hanging on that train track. Yeah, yeah. Well, that got me. Like, cause it, and, and it's all because Schumacher left the, ste- you know, the smoke machine on. So you can't see what's down below. I mean, it's very Robin Hood. Um, but <laughs> Prince of Thieves, isn't oh, it? Yeah. Like, Robin! Oh, he's fallen <laughs> into the smoke. Uh, yeah, we don't know yeah. where he's gone. But no, just the idea that they're hanging, you get one wide and you can see how tall mm-hmm. that train track is and the bridge and you don't know what you're dropping into. Obviously, it's a yeah. bit of a, bit of a cop out that he just drops and, seemingly is in bed but uh, but the idea when they're hanging there yeah. and just that, that imagery i thought was really strong come on down welcome aboard michael fine now Uh, you, you've noted down here a tale of two Corys, how they fare on the boardwalk. How are you a fan? Are you, are you have you seen much of their work? Yes and no. I think Corey Feldman, I'm for, more familiar with um, Goonies, Stand by Me, Gremlins, uh, Straight. Yeah, Gremlins. Although he, he never registers in Gremlins, for it's me. not I mean, his he's, film, he, but he's he's good in it. He's he, but he's good in it. But I felt like, um, yeah, I I felt like. Either he was off the chain and given too much freedom or Joel Schumacher probably overcooked him. But then he's got form a la Jim Carrey, Batman Forever, where maybe he saw something that was fun and he thought, well, let's double, triple, quadruple down on it. And don't get me wrong, I understand that at the time he was super popular. So it would make sense to be like, let's wring as much as we can out of him. But I found him to be quite annoying. Is he the one of the two that you uh, you disliked his performance? Yeah, the, but like I say, the other Frog Brother, you know, God bless him, he didn't really register. Um, so it, it, maybe it would have been better had there been a stronger foil for for Feldman. But Feldman felt like really you could have ditched the other guy, just had Feldman being like a weirdo loner. You probably could have, yeah, yeah. He does so little, you probably could have. Yeah, maybe that would have softened it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, he was a bit too much. Corey Haim, though, I don't know. I I was kind of charmed by. I I, I probably sense that you thought he was also quite annoying, but I thought he <laughs> struck the right chord yeah. for the balance between Michael being the super serious, good looking guy who's just oh, he's so sexy, yeah. uh, and then Corey Haim's playing this. I mean, I didn't really get a grasp of how old he was because I was like, at one point you're playing mm. this like Kevin McAllister in uh, Home Alone. And then at other points you're old enough to have, I didn't want to say it was a dirty mag, but that you're, yeah, I didn't know how old he was. So I guess I struggled to understand where he was because when he's having a bath in the, and he's singing, <laughs> I thought, oh, this is a bit Home Alone and kind of fun. <laughs> and when he's scared of the dark and he's moving the taxidermy animals. That's yeah, yeah, the, very... the, ta- the, the, the taxidermy joke, again, that's the kind of nuance I want. Like, yeah. I don't need to be just the fact that there's a closet full of taxidermy that the granddad's been leaving every day. It's fun. <laughs> and I like his maturity when he's in the comic book shop and he just thinks they're absolutely mental the the two when they're talking about vampires and he's dismissing everything it's like i'll i'll pray i never have to call you you know that all works very well for me kind of in an in a slightly aged kevin McAllister way but um yeah i like him in this but there's a drinking game you can play when uh whenever he has his mouth open you take oh, a drink it's a lot yeah uh, no i got uh, yeah it, i was going to ask it you a who, lazy it's a lazy mouth who has uh their mouth open the most. Is it Corey Haim in The Lost Boys or Phil Hoffman in Twister? That was the the question I was going to pose to you. I think it's Phil because during the dinner scene with the gravy and, and the, the potatoes, it never, it never shut. It never shut food. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, Corey Feldman. I'm a, I'm a fan, but he was like a savant. I think he was he was like uh, he had this, and apparently he the way he could be directed it was incredibly easy i think joe dante or uh richard donner talked about how it was just like directing an adult he would he would be incredible with direction and like i don't know what's happening now i you know i don't want to attack anyone personally but i don't know why he's shirtless on instagram this week i don't know why he dresses like michael jackson and it, I, I saw him in a Sam Kinison documentary about the stand-up um, Sam Kinison, and he used to do a lot of cocaine with him and go to all these parties. And Sam Kinison actually said that Lost Boys was the coolest movie of all time and c- congratulated um, Corey Feldman on it. But everything they've done since, like there's one I watched recently called Blown Away as part of uh, an erotic thriller. Kind of be oh, not the blown season. away that I've been trying to get everyone. Not to that watch one. For the, the other time, we I will get to blown away. We with should. Charlie Jones, an and Irishman. Perhaps we should get to the nineteen ninety three blown away as well. It's it's the one where Nicole Eggert is nude like through about nine times in it, and uh, yeah, a, a Baywatch favorite. And uh, yeah, they, they kind of made a lot of these films together. Like License to Drive is another one I haven't seen yet, but it's like a little subgenre of uh, the two Corys. So p- perhaps they they spoke to people for as long as they possibly could. And then unfortunately, I mean, it was a sad, it was a sad end for Corey Haim as well, but um, with struggles with drugs and addiction and things, but you know. Are you guys sniffing old newsprint or something? You think you really know what's happening around here, don't you? Well, I'll tell you something. You don't know shit, buddy. Yeah. You think we just work in a comic book store for our folks, huh? Actually, I thought it was a bakery. This is just our cover. We're dedicated to a higher purpose. We're fighters for truth, justice, and the American way. Right. Hey, man. Read this. I 
told you, I don't like horror comics. Think of it more as a survival manual. There's a number on the back. And pray you never need to call us. I'll pray I never need to call you. Final question. Especially me coming in late to this. I obviously did a little bit of research on the Lost Boys. It's completely, you know, a pervasive bit of pop culture. It's it's wo- woven itself into all manner of of kind of cultural landscapes. Very very popular amongst all generations, I think. Anyone who kind of sees it. Now, I had a theory because I wrote in my notes, and you did comment on it, like, "Gally, what the, what do you mean by?" weaponizing the 80s and what i guess i guess what i meant was i find it interesting there are certain movies of of any decade but the 80s in particular because when we talk when we talk about films of the 70s we all think of like gritty and tend to be kind of crime drama but they're always personal stories lower stakes but but high on like realism Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like Taxi Driver. Or French Connection. The French Connection is, yeah. Isn't it funny how we don't even need to like, you know, yeah, we just say. I was just, I just driver. had French Connection in my mind as soon as you said Serpico, it. Yeah, you know, yeah. you just go through this like list of, of movies and, and you kind of, that's the seventies. But the eighties, it's very, very particular. Mm. You, know, you People will give you a handful of movies. That's the future. The Goonies. Yeah. The Lost Boys is definitely on that list. And I had my, my premise for my thesis. It is a false representation of the 80s that we now buy into completely as the real representation. And I think it's because we're hearkening back to a time when the US in particular, but the West was really the dominant global force. And I find it interesting. It's small things in the movie, like the fact that Diane Weist is a divorcee moving from Phoenix and is quite contented and seemingly has no issues financially with working in a video store. Now there's nothing wrong with working in a video store, but I would expect that to be in a Tarantino script in the nineties as something that's like working in a video store is cool. Whereas in this, it's like, no, working in a video store is, you know, that's, that's a good way. You you can make a living doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's not ideal for her, but she's going to do that because that's the opportunity that, presented itself but but there doesn't seem to be i guess real life consequences to anything that's really happening grandpa doesn't do a lot apart from drink root beer and and go out and, and hang out with the widow yeah. um but has got a massive ranch the michael is a teenager but seemingly doesn't go to school or do anything Corey Haim doesn't <laughs> so it's it, you know, do you know what i mean and then i was thinking like okay so in back to the future we have a we have an aspiration that Martin McFly wants to be rich, but he was not exactly poor in the first place. So my point is, is it because we look at the Lost Boys, Back to the Future, the Goonies, and we just think, God, wouldn't it be nice to have those as be our first world problems, which is, oh, we have to move mm. house. Oh, I really yeah. like this house. As opposed to, I would love to be able to buy a house or just, <laughs> just to not be in debt for the rest of my life would be yeah lovely. yeah so I, I mean am i have i reached too far into the the rabbit hole i i think that the, the first thing that sprung to mind there i think you're absolutely right but the the shot my perhaps one of my favorite shots because of how clever it really is is when they're entering santa carla and the car they, they pass that jaws-esque 
sign as they enter. Mm. Uh, like they, it's almost like getting into Amity. But, uh, and then the camera moves past and on the back, the graffiti says murder capital of the world. And it's, it's all about this idea of, um, the sheen and the gloss of the eighties. I'm not saying it's intentional. Who knows? I mean, Schumacher is a smart guy, but behind that is, is the truth. And, and what happens on the boardwalk looks like funs, roller coasters and candy apples and all these things and merry-go-rounds. But beneath that, these vampires are, are taking everyone out. So I'm not mm-hmm. saying that he was, he was doing it, you know, in, in like a prescient way, like a, like a, uh, he was seeing the future in terms of how people would look at the eighties, but it just happens to have aged really beautifully because the eighties weren't all they were cracked up to be. I don't think, I mean, look at what happened in Britain. I mean, we've, you know, we've, we've got Thatcher issues. Um, but what's happening in America, I'm not so sure. I mean, um, I, I, having not been there, I wouldn't be able to comment too much on it, but this, this, uh, this idea that everything was better, I don't think it's a truthful. reflection of it Um, no but i think i think people have a want and a yearning mm. because they misremember and i guess that is the clear definition of nostalgia isn't it which is you you put on your rose tinted glasses and you you think of all the good things and forget about all the bad things but i think the 80s in particular obviously we go through cycles i think they say it's 20 years so at the minute we're very much in the God, the 90s was great. But then Mm. I do think about the 90s. And I know that The Lost Boys is the 80s. But I think about the 90s. And I do think there was a mood and a vibrancy, certainly in the UK. You know, I don't want to get all like um, things that are only going to get better. But I'm I'm just thinking like the idea that, you know, there was was an ambition. There was an an aspiration. I think the 80s represented that. What about this idea of the family getting in a car and moving to a new place where they can make a fresh start? That there's an optimism. Exactly. The idea that you can, you can do that is, yeah. And not to say that you cannot do that, but there are limitations to that now. And there are realities and consequences to doing that. And you know better than most, you know, you've moved to a, a completely different country and a completely different culture. And it's difficult. No, not to say that it, it's not um, something that's achievable for, for anybody. Anybody can do it. But I suppose in the 80s, it's just everything appeared to be easier. And, 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 and like I say, the film has got that built in. There is a seduction. You know, you talking about um, favorite, favorite sequences or favorite shots. For me, it's, you know, when we talked about it in Twister with, with Flash de Bond coming into the truck I just absolutely adore the opening of this oh, movie. The blue hue. Yeah, the, the blue hue, <laughs> but the, the helicopter coming in, the yeah. boardwalk. So good he does it twice because why <laughs> fucking not when it looks so goddamn He does good. a lot of them twice. He does one in reverse. The water's go, flowing the wrong way. But, I don't know. Uh, it, I know. It, I did see that. It, it's great. I, so I, I noted down the intro as well. It's immediate. Um, and uh, the whispers and how we talked about how quickly you can establish tone. We did Bigelow and, uh, uh, near dark this one does it too it, you mm-hmm. you're in it immediately within 10 seconds of it yeah and and you, you're in it and you want to stay yeah. and that's the that's that was you know we talked about schumacher's qualities as a filmmaker i just think he he understands imagery mm. composition and how to how to essentially get audiences to stay within his worlds and yeah. that includes his his serious john grisham stuff you know yeah. A, a, a time to kill, not a pleasant movie, not a pleasant subject matter, 
but a world that is fascinating. And he yeah. presents it as a world. And I mentioned the Robert Altman of it all. This is an, an ensemble. It's not yeah. quite an ensemble like a Nashville um, or a, a, a network, but it's got that sense of like, we don't necessarily have one protagonist. We have multiple people that we're following. They've all got their own strands and they all coalesce at the end. He He gets it. And I just think, you know, because he made two shitty Batman movies doesn't mean that he's ultimately a dreadful filmmaker. And because no, no. he, you know, put nipples on a suit yeah. doesn't mean that he's creatively bankrupt. <laughs> uh, it's just not the case. Well, some car wax photographically as well. It's Michael Chapman who shot Taxi Driver and Raging Bull for Scorsese. So you've, you've got the best you know, the best in the business here, um, photographing. He knows how to do smoke coming out of the grid. (laughs) Yeah, terrific stuff. Yeah, we haven't really mentioned him. Partly, I think, by design of High Point. Jason Patrick, (laughs) good-looking chap. 40-year-old son, Jason Patrick. I don't know, he looks too old for me, but... He is a bit too old in this. Um, But, again, there's a Jim Morrison thing going on. And and he has no right being that good-looking. It's obscene at at times. No, his jawline... Is outrageous. <laughs> but I just saw, similar to how I've always felt in all of his performances, bar one, which was mm-hmm. Narc. You ever seen Narc? Oh, I love Narc. Yeah. Really good. Jason Patrick is really good in it. I remember seeing him in Sleepers. And again, <laughs> yeah. big Kevin Bacon fan. So watching <laughs> Sleepers, way too young. Like, Kevin Bacon's in it. Oh, you should have seen how uh, disappointed I was about 10 minutes in. I was like, oh no. The, the best review for that film on, on Letterboxd. I, I watched it recently. The best review was, uh, I can't believe they let him do the EE adverts after that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I watched it recently and I, I, I thought Jason Patrick was lacking in a lot of charisma in, in both this and, 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 uh, and that too. And, and they, like you said, they got him to do a lot of the narration and he has one of the sleepiest voices. If, if I hadn't been told, I thought he would be doing a Harrison Ford on Blade Runner, like he's doing it begrudgingly. Like, oh, right. I'll do it, but I'll do it like we were just kids and we were sleepers. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't say that, by the way. There isn't a sleepers bingo on it. <laughs> you can coast on your looks for, for so long, you know, and I I don't know. I think he just needs to be around the right people in the right films with the right script. And I think he, he probably works. But again, it, he's fine. He's fine here because he's fine in this. He's he fine looks in this so good that he's it's absolutely fine. He's fine in this because Kiefer Sutherland mm. is like, you know, there's a, there's a reason why he becomes Kiefer Sutherland and is Kiefer Sutherland. It's because he you are drawn to him not only as the leader of the pack, but, you know, he's just got a, he's just got star quality, hasn't he? On yeah. screen, it's a husky voice, you know, again, helps when your dad's awesome too at acting, <laughs> but he's got that screen presence that means that you're like, well, I can't really take my eyes off this guy. As far as... Jason Patrick, there, there was some trivia. They say Michael over a hundred times in this film, which works out as about once every minute. So you're saying there's no clear lead and there isn't, but if, if it's anyone, it's him. It's, it's everything is pointed at him. And uh, this idea that Michael, 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 it keeps getting spoken and spoken. That really helps, I think, because it's making him. Uh, the, you know, the, the talk of the movie. And, uh, in, in terms of David, I think he's a really iconic vampire in, in, in cinema. Oh, yeah. Now. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine cosplayers up and down. <laughs> yeah. the land Get the bleach out. David. Yeah. 
Well, the mullets are great, and it, I was I was I was very happy to see Alex Winter in the back. I didn't know he was in the movie, so I was like, oh. No way. I was like, Jesus Christ, your hair's bigger than you. <laughs> it was one of those, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I was always scared of David on the, on the video box. And, and, uh, and I've never, never been scared of Kiefer Sutherland before, but that was, that was enough. He, he's, when you think of cinematic vampires, he's up there. Like I say, I think that's why it's endured. I think it's not only because it's so very, very, um, atypical of the aesthetic of the eighties, but I think it represents, like you say, that, that kind of fantastical vision of what we now perceive to be the eighties, which was, it was all glam. It, it was a different time. It was all rock and roll and sex and, and we could, you know, the aspiration and you could, you could move to a town because how many movies had we moved to a town yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and like we find ourselves, you know, karate, you said karate kid, karate kid. He is a weakling at the beginning by the end. Fucking karate chops and kicks <laughs> and he's a champion yeah. and he gets the girl mm-hmm. and that was kind of a through line that ran through not all the 80s but from about 84 we um i thought of it through the lens of stranger things because they're just constantly ripping off 80s stuff and and re repackaging it for for modern uh netflix audiences and uh, other streaming is available and you you can't underestimate this power of 80s fashion and the 80s appeal and uh people are stealing from it all all the time now like i recently in the last 10 years got into 80s music and there's a ton of 80s music to love i always thought of it as cheesy and like something that i wasn't really interested in but uh i've i've managed to find a find a way in and there's i've always enjoyed 80s films particularly 80s horror and i just watched the in search of darkness documentaries again which were these big four and a half hour um documentaries about specifically about 80s horror and they're really fantastic and um it's there's a strange thing isn't there because when a decade begins and ends it's it's like an arbitrary thing it's very clear in a numerical sense but it's like art doesn't know when it's 1980 or when it's 1981 it's just a, a a way that we tend to package things and put it into into boxes i mean what is 80s music or, or what is seventies music? And, uh, you know, we tend to read into things, uh, culturally and I enjoy doing it sometimes, but every time we talk about an eighties film, it's like, Oh, it's about AIDS. He's, he's talking about AIDS and I'm sure it's not true. Like them, there's blood and things in this. And we talk about a gay parable, but we, we talked about the thing and we talked about the fly and everything that was made in the eighties. It seems that people like to package into what was happening politically or, or whatever and i think it's, it's a very simplistic way that's art though matt isn't it um well, you know we do we, we do it as part of the show which is to try and not necessarily take get a glimpse into the filmmakers yeah headspace as to what they're trying to do yeah. but really how we perceive what they present to us sometimes it's really explicit other times it's super nuanced. Well, it's fun it. to do. It, it's fun to do that. But I, I, I don't think the filmmakers always know. And I think there's a lot of post-structuralism there where we look back and we say, oh, that's what it was about. When the the artists themselves could have been thinking 10 different things, you know, the people who, who made this. And then you get into water theory. And is it really, is this really Joel Schumacher's film and no one else's or are there other things at work? But um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting thing. I think the appeal of the 80s goes on. 
and um, it, it will continue to be mined. I think the way things are going now with with the Top Gun Maverick, and I just saw Halloween end. Oh well, that's that's going to create a new a new almost subgenre of a, a rehashing of things and rehashing, giving it yeah. back to you because you liked it then, so you're going to these people are going to like it now. And um, I'm not really a fan, but um, I, I see why they're doing it because that appeal will will probably never go away. Right. Matt, I was flying by looking for my latest victim. I saw the boardwalk, lights, roller coasters, taffy apples, a video store. <laughs> but right next to the video store was a couple of geeks oh, no. trying to tell me what to watch in the video store. <laughs> it was a little caboose. It sold lemonade, but it also sold Critics Corners magazine. So what did the Critics Corner say as I stopped off at the stall? Again, your intros are longer than the actual Critics Corner. Roger Ebert, in his review, said there's some good stuff in the movie. Uh, <laughs> patronizing as ever. But when <laughs> everything's all over, there's nothing to leave the theater with. No real horrors, no real dread, no real imagination. Just technique at the service of formula, which I've been trying to wrap my brain around. But um, technique at the service of formula? Are you see, but no, but maybe he is referring to the what I was saying, which is the plot is it is not. Uh, it, you can follow the plot. Yeah. The plot is is all there. Schumacher mm-hmm. hasn't missed a beat. But I think that that speaks to a man who is not <laughs> part of the youth market. <laughs> no, when he says there's no imagination. The... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I think I think Rod, that just means that you don't have the imagination to put a big dangly uh, string in your ear. Uh, and big hair. Yeah. I think that's probably what that is. Uh, that could be it. I don't think it, I don't think any 15, 16 year olds were like, oh, I wonder what Roger Ebert said. If he doesn't like it, I'm not going. <laughs> I had a favorite quote. Um, uh, I don't know if it's a favorite quote, but it, I just thought it might make you laugh because, uh, it reminded me of the one I did on the species where it was like an inane piece of dialogue that you found quite funny. Uh, in, in this one, I can only think marijuana's to blame for this exchange between some of the lost boys. Uh, what's going on? Michael wants to know what's going on, Marco. What's going on? I don't know what's going on. Wait a minute. Who wants to know? Michael wants to know. I think we should let Michael know what's going on. That was one of the exchanges. <laughs> a, a direct quote there from the Lost Love Boys. Love it. Yeah. Bizarre. Wow. Bizarre. There you go. Yeah. Well, we're all Lost Boys, Matt. We don't yeah. We don't have Devlin. We don't have Patrick. We're, we're lost. <laughs> That just made me laugh because it went nowhere. Yeah, it went absolutely nowhere. Uh, Final thoughts? Shall we do uh, our wrap-up on The Lost Boys? Let's do it then. Um, Okay. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, why don't you? Yeah, I'll invite you to to give us your your conclusions. I think there's much to love about The Lost Boys, um, but you really do, especially as a new viewer, you really do have to kind of buy into the, the campy, the now campy aesthetic that would have once been um, an absolute staple of cool, mm-hmm. because I think that's the that is the only issue when you're coming in from you know thirty thirty odd forty years removed is that you're watching it and going eeks, uh, you know. But <laughs> you have to remember that Van Halen were like the biggest band in the world, yeah. and uh, you know Kiss sold out stadiums. You know you didn't mm. you didn't go and see Kiss in in Scarborough. You know they weren't. They they were doing the big gigs, mm-hmm. so I think once you get past like the big hair, Bon Jovi, his hair was bigger than his his head um, at the time. So you have to kind of get into that mindset of like 
the things that are now on the greatest hits compilations that are like a bit corny and that get played at weddings and um generally are like everyone's pissed up and they were going to two-step mm-hmm. to was that was the zeitgeist and uh he drove a stake right through it uh, <laughs> in my opinion i re- i enjoy this i will say this though just to you know, give some balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danielle had seen it before and watched it with me and she was not on board at ah, all. Aged poorly for her. So for all the things that I enjoyed, like the practical effects, the makeup, the the kind of the cheesiness that was woven within. Um, and even though I didn't enjoy the Frog Brothers um, as much, I think there was just a bit too much of them. Um, she really didn't... Uh, so by the end, she was like, oh, that was poor. She even said, she, <laughs> she did an audible sigh and went, that was poor. Um, so, you know, it's each their own, but I, okay. I, I did enjoy it. I think, you know, you talked before about Halloween and this is obviously a Halloween special. Um, mm-hmm. I think this, you know, this should be on the, this is on the list for, for Halloween. Oh yeah. I think it, I think it should be because this is, it's short enough that not only can you marathon, But it's also light enough that you can really kind of, you know, nip out for a piss, come back, and you're not going to have, like, missed anything. (laughs) So it's one of those films, like, if you're doing a marathon, because when you say marathon, I never pause. I'm just like, let the film play. You can't. You can't pause. Not on our marathons. You don't pause in the cinema. When that that happens, that day happens, I'm never going to cinema again. (laughs) I liked liked the Joel Schumacher of of this era and I really liked Joel Schumacher of the nineties, yeah. you know, minus a couple of Batman um, fails. So, but I like the, the idea that if he's going to be remembered for anything, then it'll be the lost boys. So you should watch it. So it's a strong recommend from me. Cool. Um, one of the things I love the most about it is the way that it sort of spikes. Uh, sometimes I think of films like a, like a wave form, like a graph. Does that make any sense? And it's kind of has an ups, ups and downs and, and the job of the director. You talked about how Joel Schumacher doesn't really let us sit with anything for too long. He keeps it all pretty, um, moving pretty quickly. And I think if you look at like a peak and trough kind of framework of this one, it's a really entertaining balance of action and quiet moments. And there's enough character for me. I don't need too much. Uh, along with Dusk Till Dawn, it's probably my favorite vampire film. Um, uh, because Dusk is so odd uh, in its tone, I'd probably, and, and it becomes something else, and it's half of something else, half of a crime film, I'd probably put Lost Boys slightly higher. If you look at the extras and the characters, I don't know what planet this is, and I I don't care, and it's just a compelling watch. I don't care that they all dress like Dick Tracy or Adam and the Ants or whatever we've said. Um, just a note on... Um, montages jaws 2 this is how you do a people montage people are strange um he, he scored extra points with me for jamming echo and the bunny men almost immediately that's a you know big points um i think uh, the tone goes haywire at the time at times and the other caveat i wanted to say was that the, there isn't a lot of diversity and if you look at that compilation of that montage on the boardwalk it's all kinds of ethnicities around and there's really nothing going on in terms of main characters i did think that was a that was a an own goal wasn't it I, yeah. I thought that too i know it was i know you can argue it was different time but it was 90s and i don't want to place anything like arbitrarily just diver diversify things just for the sake of it but i just think there's an opportunity here to to do more with that it's strange because we know that joel schumacher has done he's done his research 
mm. you know, with vampires. So um, I do. I also thought it was odd that he didn't um, present us with a little bit more diversity within the gang. Because mm. it's a missed opportunity. Gangs are an opportunity, it? aren't they? We've seen it yeah. in how many films. Yeah. You can do all kinds of yeah. things. Yeah, you just think like the Warriors. You think of any actually any gang related movie. Yeah. You want diversity within it because then that way it makes the gang far more memorable. Right. Um, but yeah. Um, we mentioned the Haywire Tone, which on one hand you've got Corey Haim, uh, you're a shit sucking vampire, funny lines, and and on the other side you've got Jason Patrick going full existential Brando smackhead crisis and for, for some reason it works and with an odd tone and odd fluctuation and combination of tones but for me it works um it's a bit farcical at the end as well um but it wraps up with quite an action-packed sequence so it's kind of forgivable uh the comedy works for me but i have a feeling it might not work for everyone it's a bit silly in 80s uh, i think there's enough at the core and there's enough subversion with what schumacher is doing and it's also enough of an update to the vampire genre um, that offers all these little kinds of improvements and updates and additions. Um, you know, you've got an eighties topless saxophone, Shawn Michaels, but that doesn't define what this film is. Unfortunately, it, it's kind of become that, hasn't it? With, with the, the gif or the gif still don't know yeah. how to pronounce that. Scare, scariest moment. actually. you know, I was saying about hanging on the train track, actually yeah. just watching yeah. him swivel next to a <laughs> drum of fire. Yeah. I was waiting for him to go up. Yeah. Um, that's just a fleeting moment and a fleeting image in, a, in an otherwise, you know, very good film. Um, and a lot of it does feel quite contemporary in, in, in spite of having a lot of eighties iconography, and not just the fashion, but the, you know, like we said, things like Stranger Things, and they've, it's got way out of control and, and lost its way as a series, I think. And it's mining the '80s to kind of trying to bring back some of these nostalgic feelings. And I think that The Lost Boys is one that's been mined by that particular show. Um, I, I don't think the modern vampire film would be the way it is without without Lost Boys. Um, so uh there are some very desperate sequels which I wouldn't waste my time with and I actually haven't wasted my time with uh but I will absolutely 100% recommend The Lost Boys um uh, particularly as you say Gally at Halloween. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's appropriate for the time. And I'll just quickly jump on what you were saying about the the ending and the farcical nature of it. Mm. I liked the fact it was self-contained within the ranch. So it was, yeah. I like I like when films go to farce but in world, it's not the kind of farce that would be like everyone saw it. Um, right. It's contained within. You know, Ghostbusters yeah. does a similar thing. It's on top of a roof where no one can see. This it. will become an urban legend because it hasn't yes. been documented by anything. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I like that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Although the Stay Puft Man, <laughs> they did see that. Some yeah. People, some people would. Somebody have seen snapped that. a photo of that for sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, but anyway. Cool. Yeah. All right then. Um, or where? Matt, can our listeners uh, mm -hmm. find The Lost Boys if they don't already own it? The Blu-ray's good. I, I've got it back in the UK. Um, I was looking for the commentary because I think one exists and he's he's pretty good on the commentaries as far as I remember, Joel mm -hmm. Schumacher. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's nothing in Korea. Uh, if you're in the UK, you can stream it on um, Virgin Media. Got to uh, rent it though. You do. Um yeah, that's that's streaming. And then you can rent it, Chile, Amazon, Google Play, Microsoft, Rakuten TV, all the usual places. And if you are 
one of our American friends. You can stream it on Showtime and the Roku channel and rent and buy and all the usual places too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, could I can I plug the blog, Gully? Oh, absolutely. Go ahead, please. Uh, instead of a, a normal kind of essay for the Lost Boys this week, we're going to do... Um, they've let me take over the Hello Rewind this year, given Devlin a, a year off. So I've programmed, I think it's 8 a.m. until 4 in the morning, marathon stint of uh, Hello Rewind goodies. And uh, there should be a little mini essay kind of thing for each entry uh, that will take you through your entire Halloween this year if you want to uh, play along. I've got uh, the Lost Boys included as part of Afternoon Vamps with a, a double bill with uh, Hammer Horror called Twins of Evil, which is really fun. And uh, yeah, have a, a tune into our um, blog this week and you can follow along if you if you wish. Excellent. Well, that leaves me to just say, listeners, if you enjoy what we do, please like, subscribe, share, pen us a, a wee review, spread the gospel team. That's all we ask. Uh, and if you are like, um, like Lewis, um, you know, even all the way up in Twat in the Shetland Isles, um, he sent in his listener request. So please do, um, email us or, Gmail account is attached to the notes um, or you can, you know, you can contact me directly via Twitter or, well, I think actually Twitter, I don't really give anything else away or you can get us on Instagram as well. Um, and then please do check out the website. We do sell stuff as well. Mm -hmm. um, I am desperate, desperate for a Lost Boys shower cap, um, <laughs> which I haven't yet told Devlin he's got to make, yeah. but I'm wanting, actually, I'm wanting the shower cap to have a little dangled uh, bit of jewellery that I can put over my ear. <laughs> it had healed over. Well, you need a USP in this market of, of absolute tat everywhere, so you've got to try and find something that's, that, that differentiates you from the, uh, the other market leaders, and that's yeah. mine. Um, but yeah, no, please do. Uh, and I guess, Matt, it leaves us to say our goodbyes. Wish everybody a lovely, lovely Halloween. Whatever you're doing, you know, please follow the blog. Um, Matt's put a lot of effort into it. But if you don't want to watch all the movies, just nick some of his ideas. That's what it's all about. He's not going to charge you, no. but he will think less of you if you do that. So you, <laughs> can, you do have to kind of do the whole thing. Just a little. Yeah, you know. But I mean, what is it to feel less? <laughs> Matt, Matt's things. only one of the four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I still love you. Um, cool. All right. Well, we'll say our goodbyes then, shall we, Matt? Yeah. One thing about living in Santa Carla, I never could stomach all the damn vampires. It's Gally in Glasgow. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs> Worms. Happy Halloween, everyone. It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.
cold. 